0: The next great space telescope. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The next space-based telescope is almost ready to head into space. The James Webb Space Telescope aims to look deeper into the history of the universe, piggybacking off the incredible observations of the Hubble Space Telescope. It's undergoing final tests before getting packed away for shipment to French Guiana, ahead of a launch currently slated for Halloween. The massive telescope, made with 18 mirrors and a shield the size of a tennis court, will peer deeper into space than ever before, capturing photons in the infrared from the dawn of our universe. We'll speak with NASA's Lee Feinberg, optical telescope element manager, about the mirrors and this last leg of testing before launching later this year. Then we'll speak with our panel of University of Central Florida physicists about the next step in space-based observation and what's ahead for the science community once it launches. The James Webb Space Telescope, that's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. The 18 gold mirrors of the James Webb Space Telescope look like pieces of art, a shiny beehive of polished glass that glimmer against the black telescope. But they're an important piece of the observatory, focusing ancient photons into the telescope's sensors, looking into the infrared history of our universe. Lee Feinberg is the Optical Telescope Element Manager for the James Webb Space Telescope and joins us now to talk about the importance of these mirrors. Lee, thanks for speaking with us. Happy to be here. So when you look at the James Webb Space Telescope, there are these mirrors, and they are just absolutely gorgeous-looking mirrors. Tell me about them. What, what are they made of? And they're just so brilliant. Why, why is that?
1: Um, well, let's see. They're, they're, they're made of very interesting materials. The, uh, the mirrors themselves are made of beryllium. And um, it's funny because a lot of people look at the mirrors and they see the front surface, which is the coating on the mirror, which is gold. Mm-hmm. And um, and of course, they look beautiful. But uh, if you're an engineer, the beauty of the mirror is actually when you look at it from behind. And that is because these mirrors are incredibly lightweighted um, and and their fact um, partially what enabled the mission was the ability to make mirrors that are 10 times lighter per unit area than the the primary mirror of the Hubble Space Telescope. If if we had flown a primary mirror that had the same uh, mass per unit area as Hubble, we would not have been able to get it into space. The rocket would not have been able to get it up. It would have been too heavy. Mm -hmm. And so we had to develop a lighter weight mirror. And we also needed a mirror that would work very well at very cold temperatures. Webb is a infrared telescope that operates at about minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit and so we needed a material that has really good properties uh, when it gets really cold. And it turns out beryllium is this amazing material that both is super lightweight, but at the same time very strong mm-hmm. and um, works really well at cold temperature. So we, so we made it out of beryllium. The beryllium is machined from the back, uh, really like with a rib structure that are about the size of you know, a piece of paper in terms of the thickness of the ribs. And then on top of that beryllium mirror, we have a coating, mm-hmm. which is the gold coating. And, and the gold is there to reflect the infrared light. It does a really good job of that. That's why we choose gold.
0: And how many mirrors are on the telescope itself?
1: Yeah, there's 18 mirrors. They're um, hexagonal shaped. And um, they are on actuators, which allow us to move them around a little bit. And so we'll we'll position them, you know, finally in space. But um, but there's 18 of them on the primary mirror.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, this is probably one of the most important parts of the telescope, right? I mean, this is what directs the light into, uh, into the the receivers, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you build a telescope, it's always about the primary mirror, and it's it's the largest mirror in the system. It's really the key mirror. It's the one that defines the resolution of the system. The, the bigger that mirror. Um, the better the resolution. And when you work at longer wavelengths, resolution goes down, so you need an even bigger mirror. So when you work in the infrared, you need a really large mirror if you want to have the kind of resolution that you have on Hubble, which is in the visible. Uh, so that's why it's so key. And it, it, you know, one of the problems that we had was the mirror is so large, the mirror itself, if it had just been a single mirror, would not have fit in the rocket. Mm -hmm. So not only did we have a mass problem, but we had a how do you fit this in a cylindrical rocket that's only (laughs) about five meters wide. Um, And that's why we have two wings. We have these wings that unfold. They're kind of like a it's kind of like, you know, a folding table. And um, each wing has three mirrors on it. So we Mm -hmm. have 12 mirrors on what we call the center section, which is a very large composite structure. And then we have these two wings that are on hinges and they have motors that deploy them in space. Um but when we when we're in the rocket we're all stowed up and the wings are, are sort of folded up.
0: hmm Give me a sense of scale. What when, when all of these mirrors are unfolded, what's the size of of this, you know, reflective surface? How big are we talking here? Um it, it's about six and
1: a half meters uh diameter, the primary mirror. And uh in terms of area we're talking over twenty five square meters.
0: That's crazy big. Uh,
1: big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For for a space telescope, this is, this is large. This is, you know, significantly larger than Hubble, which was 2.4 meters. Um, uh, yeah. So th- this is, this is, this would even be large for a ground telescope, to be honest with you. I mean, there are really large ground telescopes, but uh, this is, this is a huge telescope.
0: And you said the size is really to capture these uh, wavelengths in the infrared. Um, is that kind of the, the, only advantage to size or, I mean, what else can you do with such a large telescope like this? What other advantages does it have?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, there's two key advantages. I mean, one is, as I mentioned, the the resolution, but the second one, which is as important is what we call sensitivity, which is the ability to capture as many photons coming in as possible. And I I sometimes, you know, like to describe photons kind of like raindrops. Mm -hmm. Think of these little bundles of energy these happen to be, you know, infrared wavelength photons coming in, but we want to capture as many as possible because, you know, one of the main drivers for Webb is to see the very early universe when the very first, you know, stars and galaxies were forming in one of the earliest epochs of the universe. But those objects, although they've taken a long time to get here, they were very dim. And so actually it was the, it was scientists who were Studying the data from Hubble, you know, after we did the repair mission to Hubble, they 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 had Hubble stare at a very dark patch of the sky. They called it the Hubble Deep Field, and they looked as deep as they could. You know, weeks and weeks of Hubble time were spent um, looking at some of the earliest galaxies that they could see, which was when the universe was about a billion years old. Well, those astronomers looking at the data said, you know, we really want to look farther back to when the universe, you know, had some of its earliest stars and galaxies closer to when it was about 300 million years old. And they calculated to do that, number one, you couldn't look at visible light. You had to look at infrared light because the universe, because the universe had this large accelerated expansion, the light has been stretched. The fabric of space-time is stretched. And so the light from the stars, which may have started out in the visible, is now in the infrared as space-time itself is stretched. And they calculated how many photons would be getting here. And they said, we need a telescope that's about six and a half meters in size. And by the way, because it's infrared light that we're looking at, it has to be very cold. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and and the reason it's cold is because when, when uh, objects are warm, they produce a lot of infrared light. There's, there's something called black body emission and it's, it's a temperature dependent thing. So um, that's why you can use infrared glasses at night. They're great at night. You can see people with infrared glasses because your body at 98.6 degrees produces a lot of infrared light. Well, we don't want the mirror to be producing infrared light,
0: so we have to cool it, and that's why we have to cool it to about minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier in our conversation that because of the just the size of these mirrors, they have to be folded to stow away um, in the rocket's nose cone um, before getting to space. Tell me a little bit about one of the major milestones your team reached um recently when it comes to the the folding and unfolding of, of these mirrors
1: yeah um so you know i mentioned earlier that we have these two wings you know the wing each wing has three of these fairly large mirror segments the, the mirror segments themselves these 18 primary mirror segments are each about 1.3 meters across and there's three of them on each wing but we actually just did the very last wing deployment and this is actually the very last motorized deployment we'll be doing on the entire observatory um, as part of the process of demonstrating that we will be able to survive the vibration and the acoustic uh, generated forces from launch and so this is like what we call our final deployment test and it happened to have been the wings that were the very final thing we deployed and so this was the last test we just completed it this week and it demonstrates that everything works right and should deploy in space and of course on the ground, we have one g; we have gravity, and so we have to think about the fact that in space we'll be at zero g. Things will be changing temperature, and uh, you know we 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 compensate for those effects when we do this testing, and deal with those effects. But um, but but it's successfully deployed, and then um, we're actually now in the process of doing the final stowing of those, really the second wing. The first wing's already been stowed, and when we stow that second wing, at that point. The telescope and the primary mirror is, is done. Mm-hmm. There will be no more deployments. Um, it's basically locked in for launch, mm-hmm. and so that's why it was such a key milestone. Because basically, at the at this point, all of the mirrors and all of the deployment systems for the mirrors are all are, are all done doing their their testing, mm-hmm. and um, and are ready.
0: <laughs> it's got to be so a sigh it, of relief for for your team, huh?
1: <laughs> yeah, it is, and it's um you know you know you're always um you build confidence along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, every time you do a test, you're you you you're a little more confident. This test went extremely well. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we're feeling really good about, you know, the telescope and about the deployments that we need to do with the mirrors. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is, it is, a, it's a nice feeling. It's, a, you know, I, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's funny, because on the one hand, it's a great relief, but we still have one more critical deployment to go and that's the one we do in space and i think that's really the one where we'll finally <laughs> feel relieved so le- 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 that.
0: Le- let's talk about that final deployment because you know right now the, the next major step for james webb space telescope is getting shipped down to its launch facility and, and integration into the rocket uh and then a launch um i think what october 31st is is the plan date right now right um yep. once that happens Um, It's time to to deploy this thing. What's that process like? And, um, you know, what are you going to be looking for? How does this happen? And and how quickly can you start collecting those photons?
1: Yeah, um, great question. So, you know, first of all, there's the telescope, which has the, the mirrors. But there's also a really critical piece that actually deploys before the telescope mostly, which is the sun shield. This is a five layer membrane that's when it's unfolded is about the size of a tennis court. And those five layers of membrane are what allow us to cool the telescope down. we call it passively. It's kind of like a large umbrella in space that blocks the sun and the earth and the moon. And so so the very you know during the very early part of the mission, the, one of the first things we do is actually you know after we get power and communications is we'll, we'll deploy the um, we'll, we'll deploy the sun shield. But once that happens, and, and and let me just say all these big deployments I'm talking about, they're all happening in the first two weeks of the mission. So very early on, starting, you know, after a couple days, we'll be doing these deployments. And, um, you know, first we'll deploy the sun shield and then we'll deploy uh, the, the telescope itself, which includes the wings and includes the secondary mirror. And those are pretty, you know, straightforward deployments. They're, you know, take maybe a few hours each. Um, we lock them in place, you know, once we get them into position, there's kind of a way that we, we have for locking them in place. And then we're ready to start deploying the mirrors, the mirrors at, at about two weeks into the mission, just a little over that, we'll, we'll deploy the 18 primary mirror segments about a half inch forward. And the reason we do that is, you know, I mentioned these mirrors are on actuators, e- each mirror has seven actuators on it. And the seven actuators allow us to move the mirror around, you know, kind of tip and tilt it um, as long as, and there's also one in the center that allows us to just slightly change the radius of curvature of that mirror. Well, those, the mirrors during launch have to be what we call snub. They have to be kind of put against a hard stop Mm -hmm. so that the launch launch vibration doesn't shake them too much. So the first thing we'll do about two weeks in is we'll move all 18 mirrors forward by about a, a half an inch. And that allows us to start the process of aligning the mirrors But in order to align the mirrors, we need images, and we actually use the main science camera of of Webb. It's called the near infrared camera, near cam, as what we call our wavefront sensor. That's what gives us the information that tells us how to move the mirrors. Because when the mirrors are first deployed from one mirror to the next, they can be uh, several millimeters from where they need to be. And ultimately, we need to take those 18 mirrors and position them using these special actuators As though they're a single monolithic mirror. So from one mirror to the next, they need, they they need to be aligned to a fraction of a wavelength of light, you know, that's that's like, (laughs) uh, yeah, it's a crazy small number, you know, Um, we're talking, you know, some people talk millimeters, we talk like millions of millimeters. That's the kind of scale. Yeah. And so, so, but, but it turns out we can do that. Using uh, images from the near infrared camera, but that camera itself has to cool down. The detectors don't work at warm temperatures, so we're actually going to wait for the camera to cool down. It takes almost thirty days to get it cold enough, and then we can. A little after that, a few days after that, we'll start taking images, even while the camera is still cooling, and we'll go through a whole process. It's called wavefront sensing and control. It takes about three and a half months to completely align the telescope, and um, and and we've developed a whole, it's really a, a technology in and of itself. Um, we built a separate test bed that looks a lot like web, except it's, instead of it being six and a half meters in diameter, it's only one meter in diameter, mm-hmm. um, but it has 18 segments. And we've rehearsed how we do this, that we, these algorithms that we we call them. And and one of the really neat things about these algorithms is at the end of all these algorithms, the very last one we do, where we move the mirrors in these very small positions, we we use a technique that's actually that was actually really perfected to help figure out the problem with Hubble. Because mm. uh, you know I don't, I don't know if you uh, remember or know your history about Hubble, but when we launched Hubble, we found out that the primary mirror was actually had a, a slight, slightly wrong prescription. It had something called spherical aberration. And in order to figure out how to fix Hubble, to put what amounted to a set of contact lenses on Hubble, we actually came up with a method of taking defocused images using the telescope mm-hmm. and analyzing those images using these special algorithms that we developed called phase retrieval. Well, it turns out those same algorithms with some modifications for the fact that we're segmented are what let us turn a telescope that's mostly aligned, but not quite the right surface into one that's p- properly aligned, almost like going from an aberrated you know, version of the telescope to a properly um, you know, a line telescope. Huh. And so with that that's the final algorithm that we'll use. I know it's kind of a neat
0: it's fascinating, yeah. connection. Yeah. So. Well, so, I mean, it sounds like there's there's quite a bit of work to be done once it is in space from cooling down to, you know, um, aligning all of these mirrors, but totally going to be worth the wait, right, Lee? I mean, what are you most oh excited? God, yeah. <laughs> what are you most <laughs> excited for to, to be able to peer into deep in, in the universe? What do you want to see first? Um, well, let's
1: see. You know, it, one thing that's amazing to me is looking at the list of, they call them the early release objects, the first um, scientific things they will do with web, which kind of show off its capabilities. And then also looking at um, the, what they call cycle one science, the science that astronomers propose to do. There is a large number, you know, over a thousand proposals. And they've selected several hundred that are going to be the first year's worth of um, images and scientific data that it takes. And I'll tell you, I look at every one of them and I'm like, wow, that would be a mission in and of itself. Mm-hmm. It is so cool. So, I mean, part of it for me is just, you know, how many different amazing things there are. Um, I, you know, I especially am interested in um, both the early universe because I think, you know, it's just really fascinating that there's this period of time in the universe from when it was about 300 million years to about a billion years old that they call the dark ages because we haven't been able to ever study it. We haven't had a telescope with the right wavelengths and sensitivity. And, and so we're going to go from dark ages to here's what it looks like. So that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and also the exoplanet science, you know, yeah. the looking at planets around other stars Um, looking at their atmospheres, what are the atmospheres made of, Um, you know, I I just think it's going to be really fascinating to find out whether the planets in our solar system are pretty typical of all planets, or whether there's like whole types of planets that we never even dreamed of in terms of what their atmospheres are and how things evolve. And I just think that's just going to that's really going to be a very interesting thing to learn about. And it might tell us something maybe about our own planet. I don't know. So uh, I'm really excited about that.
0: Looking forward to all the really cool science about to be beamed back down from the James Webb Space Telescope. We've been speaking with Lee Feinberg. He's the Optical Telescope Element Manager for Webb at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Lee, thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure.
0: Still to come, a look at the impact James Webb will have on science and our understanding of the universe. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists are eager to get their hands on the data James Webb promises to collect. So what's so special about this telescope? To talk about the future of space-based observations and the research ahead for James Webb, we're joined by Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney. They're physicists at the University of Central Florida and host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. Josh, Addie, Jim, good to have you again. Happy to be here.
2: Good to see you. Yeah.
0: So, so let's, let's go back. I know we've talked about it before, but just to refresh our listeners, um, why is this such an exciting mission for, uh, for scientists and astronomers um, and, and folks that, that work with telescopes? Why should we be excited about James Webb?
3: It's the next great space observatory, a huge mirror, and it's looking in a different part of the spectrum than Hubble did. So it's looking in the near and mid-infrared part of the wavelength region where we'll see completely different processes and different things than Hubble was able to see.
4: Right, and, and those are very difficult wavelengths to see from Earth-based telescopes because Earth's atmosphere screws up a lot of observations in infrared. So this is a, a really great opportunity to see a lot of stuff that it's really hard to see from Earth. Mm-hmm.
0: What kind of things
4: um, will we be able to see? All
2: kinds of things.
4: <laughs> oh, I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna, I'll tell you about the thing that I'm most excited about. I don't know. I'm sure that Josh and Eddie have different things that they're most excited about because they're planetary scientists. From the cosmology angle, this is super exciting because. Uh, we're going to be able to see the stuff on the very hairy edge of the universe. That is the stuff that the stars that were born first in the universe. And this is a a realm of time and space that we haven't been able to very well probe until now. So we get to see those first baby stars in the universe when, when the universe was only 30 million or maybe 300 million years old or something. We actually don't know very well, which is why this telescope is going to tell us a lot about that. And it's the reason it's so good at looking at that kind of stuff is that stuff is so far away. That, in the time it has taken the light to get from it to us, that light has been red shifted that is stretched out because of the expansion of the universe, and so stuff that was in the visible part of the spectrum that we could normally see with like Hubble is now shifted into the infrared, and now we need James Webb
0: why is that so important jim what what can that kind of help cosmologists like yourself uh answer? by seeing that far into the past. Yeah,
4: I mean, it tells us, I mean, we, we, like I said, we, we have a pretty good snapshot of the, pic- of the universe when it was only 300,000 years old, the cosmic microwave background that many of your listeners have at least heard of. Uh, and we know what the universe looks like now, but the middle grounds are, are tough. And we've never been able to see this far back in the universe. It will help us refine our models of how the universe was born and how it evolves from the early times to now and and so this is very very exciting
0: will it help with some of the um terrifying things that you like to talk about all the time jim will this help us see <laughs> i do like <laughs> black holes and super <laughs> i do like to scare you brennan uh not so much it is true though interestingly
4: that these those first stars that are born in the universe are terrifyingly huge stars generally they, they tend to be much much larger than our sun even though and in, in this age of the universe stars are pretty small so i don't know if if big stars scare you maybe the early sure. universe is a, is a scary <laughs> place
2: it's also from a time back when like things didn't really have substance like hydrogen wasn't it's called the era of recombination cuz like hydrogen and was dissociated and and things were just there were just protons and electrons flying around and it was a complicated uh time and it,
4: yeah and this in the era before those stars were born, it was a terrifying time because it's just totally like i said Adi said it's there weren't stars there weren't if there's no stars, there's no galaxies, there's nothing it's just totally dark. oh, the dark ages of the universe, so that's kind of scary to be out in an empty void of total darkness. Uh, If I had a time machine, I do not go back to that time.
3: Yeah, let's pass on that.
0: (laughs) Josh Josh is a planetary scientist. What uh, what are you
3: most excited about? Very interested in what it's going to be seeing about planets around other stars, and so a lot of the observations are going to be looking at disks where planets are forming around other stars. And you know, if the latter half of the 20th century was sort of the golden age of Uh, planetary exploration in our own solar system. I think the first half of the 21st century is the golden age of exploration of planetary systems around other stars. And James Webb is going to be a huge part of that. Um, we're, We're going to be actually seeing planets that we know exist around some of these other stars in really great detail, not like imaging detail and seeing things like that, but learning so much about their composition uh their temperatures and their history um so just looking at some of the list of the observing programs that are going on there uh are is very exciting you know uh looking at uh the details of some of these planets uh first and only wave multi-wavelength map of an sub-Earth and the atmosphere of a 17 million year old hot Jupiter. And so we're really getting into planetary science of planets around other stars, not just the Mm -hmm. sun.
0: These are a lot of the the candidates that have been picked out by exoplanet hunting telescopes, right? Like
3: TESS and Kepler? These are things that have been discovered by uh, projects such as Kepler. Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: And which we really haven't gotten a good look aside from just knowing that they're there right
3: knowing they're there knowing their orbits and a little bit about their their mass and that's about it from many of those uh initial sort of detection campaigns yeah Addie, what about you as, as a planetary
0: scientist what are what are you excited about
2: Sure, I'll bring it even closer to home <laughs> and talk about some of the exciting things we can will hopefully be able to see within our own solar system. Um, so there's a lot of folks here, for instance, who have uh, been getting some time on web uh, to do solar system studies, looking at things like asteroids and comets, really understanding their compositions better. Um, there's some nice uh, overlap with um, a lot of the other rovers and, and spacecraft we've sent to planetary bodies, we, we typically have instruments in the infrared, so there will be really nice. Um, overlap with some of those and really understanding better things about the composition of things in our solar system. We always try to tie this a little bit more into like life, past and present life and how sort of the environments for life could exist or have existed on other places. So like looking for signs of water and, and more organic molecules um, in these locations on Mars and then small bodies um, is, web will help us with those detections.
0: That was Addy Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney, their physicists at the University of Central Florida and host the podcast Walk About the Galaxy. You can hear more of their podcast wherever you get this show or by visiting walkaboutthegalaxy.com. We should mention UCF is a financial sponsor of this show. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Subscribe on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've got more space coverage online. Visit wmfe.org space. You can also stay connected to this show on social media. Just give our Facebook page a like. It's Are We There Yet podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. And the support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.